This is a whole observatory podcast. Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining us for another episode of Star Stuff, a space podity. My name is Cody Halfmoon, and today we'll be talking about a planet that we feel doesn't get nearly enough attention, and um, specifically some of the adventures of one of our own scientists here at Lowell. Uh, today, I'm joined by co-host Haley Osborne. Hey, Haley. Hi, everybody. Recurring guest star and Lowell historian Kevin Schindler. Hello, great to see everybody, as it were. And our special guest today, Dr. Larry Wasserman. Thanks for joining us, Larry. Hi there. So I have here in my notes that Haley prepped for us today that you've been at Lowell since 1974. And um, just for kind of a fun look back like what was Lowell like in the 70s well there were a lot less people right <laughs> I, mean, uh, I think the total staff the total staff was close to 15 20 what whoa whoa <laughs> Flagstaff had a population of about 25,000 it's now wow. 70 oh my gosh. and uh, so it was a much smaller operation there were only about four four or five scientists on staff at the time. Now there are Jeez. 12, 15. Wow. And uh, we didn't have a marketing department. We didn't have our business department consisted of one person. Oh, oh my gosh. I'm sure houses weren't as expensive as they are today. <gasps> no. Back then. No, my first house was, I think, about 10% of what my current house is worth. Maybe, maybe, uh, five percent at this point oh my gosh oh my gosh Jeez. that could be a I whole other conversation my pay, my, my pay was ten percent of what it is <laughs> true true sure, yeah and, and what was on the campus i know the rotunda building was obviously the clark yeah the rotunda <laughs> was built in 1915 16 kevin would know yeah, finished in 1916 uh, and then the upper floors were added several years later yeah, and the Clark, of course, was there because it was installed in the 1800s. Mm -hmm. What was the McAllister building, which is now a new telescope, whose name I don't remember, um, <laughs> Dyer didn't exist. <laughs> the yeah, Dyer telescope. Uh, the Steel Visitor Center didn't exist. The Godot didn't exist. The, uh, the chalet was there. Uh, the shop wasn't there, mm -mm. and the road that now runs behind the uh, Planetary Center, which is now the Hendrick Center, which was there then, uh, mm -hmm. ran up through around the campus and in front of the building. So <sighs> to come into campus, you went up the hill where you're not allowed to make the right turn anymore mm -hmm. just before you get to the visitor center, oh. around the loop in front of the the uh, Slifer building, and the parking was in front of what's now the, uh, the Hendrick Center, and then looped around and connected. So the parking lot where the steel visitor center is wasn't there. The parking lot behind the, the Hendrick Center wasn't there. The collections center wasn't there. It was a much smaller operation. And Larry, I think 
I think you're the oldest, let me rephrase that. You're the longest tenured person at Lowell now. I think Brian Skiff came a couple of years yeah. after you did, but I think you the, I think so. have the longest legacy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Dave, Dave Schleicher and I are likely, and Brian are the, probably the, uh, yeah. the longest lasting. I think Dave got here in the so early far. 80s and Deidre was in 80s when Jay Gallagher was director. Yeah. But so now whatever you say yeah. is oh fact gosh. because nobody was here um, at that well, time. Right. <laughs> no one can refute it. Yeah. All, all the people that were here pretty much when I came have either retired, have retired. I mean, there's Otto Franz and Ted Bowl and Bob Millis and Nat White and Wes Lockwood. They've oh all, uh, they all retired. I enjoy what I'm doing, so I'm having too much fun. <laughs> In fact, uh, Kevin, you know, you 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 find my occultation craziness interesting. We'll jump into occultations yeah. a little bit later because, you know, you think about doing astronomy, you know, most people think about, you know, telescope dome or sitting at the office of computers, but it, there really is this aspect of exploration where you go out it's like a Lewis and Clark thing or something. Or I mean, where it really is an expedition where you can be in the middle of nowhere and that's still happening today and you're still involved with these. So I, I can't wait till we get to that segment to talk about yeah. that. So uh, speaking of like Lowell back in the seventies um, or I guess technically the eighties is what we're heading towards. Um, is it true that you got to work with Clyde Tomba, the man who found Pluto? He wasn't here physically, but I, he did show up occasionally. He'd drop in for a visit. So I have met him or I did. Wow. Meet him. So uh, that's really cool. Speaking, so cool. speaking of people, <laughs> nice speaking person. of people you've worked with, um, you would like to talk a little bit about your background before you got to Lowell, you went to Cornell and you had an advisor whose name most people will recognize. Maybe you could talk about that a little bit and then yeah, how you ended up coming to Lowell. Yes, okay. I, want, I want to hear this story so I, bad. I always, uh, I always say that uh, if I was in the business of pickup lines, <laughs> you know, the line about come up to my apartment and see my etchings, uh, I can use the line, come up to my office and see my thesis signed by Carl Sagan. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's so cool. That's so cool. Because oh. he was my thesis advisor. Although okay, I, wait, what was he like? Tell us everything, He was, he was a very nice person. I, I'm, I'm really sorry he died young. He was yeah. a, a, a great person for astronomy. He, he he did a lot of popularization and, and was very helpful. He was here uh, filming Cosmos. There's a scene in Cosmos where, mm -hmm. where they filmed it in the, in the Clark Dome. The interesting thing is, and I never realized that this, this is what happens, he uh, he was here the entire day. They spent eight hours filming, and I think that scene ended up being three or four minutes in, right. the, <laughs> in the actual show. So it's the like some of our podcast recordings goes into making a one-hour television production like that is enormous. That's, that's the, I mean, if that's that's the episode Blues for a Red Planet, and it's really yes, you can get yes. it. I mean, you can see clips of it on YouTube, but you can also still order the old Cosmos, the original Cosmos series. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty neat to see, you know, that was 1980 or 81. It's neat to see what the Clark telescope mm -hmm. looked like. And um, 
and and then of course Carl Sagan sitting there. We use a picture of him quite often um, where he's in the Clark. Yeah, it's a still from his visit here. It's in your book. A little plug for Kevin's book. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I, I, was... I mean, you might enjoy the name of our podcast was obviously um, a, a direct quote from Carl Sagan. We're yeah. big fans. Anyway, so I got my PhD degree at Cornell in 73. And I hung around for a year as a postdoc. And then I got a job here. And in I, I, I'm making myself sound really old, but in those days uh, in astronomy, now it's hard to get a job in astronomy. I mean, we're we're looking for a new scientist right now, and so we advertise in all the obvious places, and we'll get applications from maybe fifty or sixty people who might want this job, and then we have to sort through all the applications and interview them and make a short list and. Uh, the whole bit. Uh, then there were fewer PhD candidates in a year. And so my my advisor, Carl, knew some people who were looking for a person. <laughs> yeah. And he suggested I, I talk to two of them. And at the time, the Lowell person was Bill Baum, who has since retired and unfortunately died. And he came out to Cornell and took me to dinner and offered me a job. So it was very informal. And uh, it almost didn't work out. Uh, mm-hmm. I drove, I picked him up at his hotel, drove him to the restaurant, dropped him at his hotel, and on the way back to my house, my car ran out of gas. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> I often wonder what would have happened if... Uh, if the car had two ounces less gas in it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Was that, was that John Hall? So I, I love that you just reference him as my, 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 you know, oh, Carl said. It's so cool. Yeah. First name basis. Ugh. Honestly. Mm-hmm. So no, funny. I didn't meet John Hall till I got here. So it was done sort of, I mean, John knew about it. He sent me the, the letter of employment came from John, but not the, uh, not I. I never met him till I got here. So I came out in September '74 and been here ever since. You do go That's home awesome. occasionally, though. That is cool. Occasionally, <laughs> every now and again. So uh, back then, what kind of research was being done at Lowell? Uh, it was all planetary. Oh, nice. Pretty much. Everybody was doing planets. Mm-hmm. Uh, Otto was our own, our only sort of stellar astronomer. He was interested in double stars, always had been. So uh, he had an instrument. I guess he was the only stellar astronomer at the time. And Henry Gickless uh, was doing the um, Lowell Proper Motion Survey at the time. So those were the two stellar type topics. John Hall was sort of a stellar astronomer, but I don't think he did much research while he was acting, was he, while he was director. And Gickless is our, our namesake for the Gickless um, auditorium in yes. the visitor center. Is that correct? Yeah. Henry actually met uh, Percival Lowell. Oh, he, wow. He what? grew up here and his father worked up here. And apparently when he was five years old, he met Percival Lowell and 
you know, in the oh 1910s. My gosh. Whoa. No kidding. That's yeah, Henry's father. Um, well, then it's true. There, we have we have pictures of um, the Lamplin Dome being constructed, and there's a picture of Henry's father um, helping with the construction. And Henry grew up in the base of Mars Hill, um, and his best friends were sons of the astronomers. So he grew up knowing them, and and yeah, that's the story before right before Percival died. In 1916, Henry met him. Yep. I didn't remember. I, I wanted to ask you, since we're still looking back, um, I wanted to also ask you about another person, um, Robert Burnham Jr., who was involved with Henry Gickless's uh, proper motion survey. And of course, in his spare time at Lowell, he wrote the the uh, Celestial Handbook, um, Bible, Compendium, yes. whatever you want to call it, 2,000 pages. <laughs> um, what do you recall of him? Very little. He was so standoffish and shy that I knew him to sort of nod at him if I saw him, but he'd never strike up a conversation. He'd never say anything about he was up to. I just knew he was working with, with uh, Henry in the proper motion survey. Mm -hmm. He was uh, extremely shy. And I, I know that's the case. Other people have mentioned the same yeah. thing. Mm -hmm. So. I don't think I said more than 10 words to him in three years. <laughs> and Kevin, could you remind us who, uh, I, I know I know who he is because I jokingly call him Bo Burnham, but <laughs> could you remind us uh, who yeah, he, he was is? Yeah, he was a self-taught astronomer living in Prescott when he discovered a comet that got the attention of Henry Gickless, who was starting this proper motion survey, looking at how stars' positions change over time. And... And Henry hired um, Robert, and for the next 20 years, Robert worked here. And when he wasn't using what we know today as a Pluto telescope to take pictures, um, he was, or analyzing that, he was gathering notes and created this compendium that I think every amateur and most professional astronomers probably have a copy. It's affectionately known as Burnham's Celestial Handbook. And it covers all 88 constellations uh, mythology, science. He talks about coins, anything you can imagine having to do with with the constellations, and and it's a, a three volume set that um, is is a standard. It needs to be updated now. The science, but it's it's still kind of a classic thing. And he did that while he was here in his spare time when he wasn't working. He was a single guy living in a cabin, and mm -hmm. I mean this was pretty much his life. I've heard it's a very romantic. Uh, it's very romantically written as well. Eddie, there's a memorial to him now on the Pluto wall. Right, and we're we're going oh, to be yeah, opening right. a display in August. We're doing a, a um, panel discussion about him, and his only living relative will be here, um, Donna Courtney. And then we're also mm -hmm. going to be opening a little display in the rotunda to kind of help, you know, remember his contribution to astronomy. Yeah, I, I realize now that he was a very interesting person, and I, I just <laughs> couldn't get through the shell. Well, it reminds me of a few years ago. He's like an introvert. It's like a few years ago, Peter Collins, who worked here, who was a brilliant guy, um, and but you'd walk by him, I and mean, he was very friendly, but otherwise he was just kind of in his own world. And those who knew him, <laughs> knew him or worked with him, you know, knew he was such a good guy, but it's not somebody you would you know, strike up a conversation with very often. And then you find out after yeah. the fact what an interesting person he was. 
Yeah, it's a shame. I mean, it, I don't know. They, you know, they're good at what they do, but they're not very good at socializing yeah. and letting people know who they are. Contrary to most astronomers really who cool. are very personable, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> personable and uh like lol back in the day sounds really cool back back in the day back um, in the day <laughs> but um i do want to talk a little bit about like current stuff and um larry i feel like i know you a little bit better than most of the astronomers here uh primarily because of meet an astronomer could you tell us a little bit about what that event is like kind of from like an astronomer's perspective um uh, yeah the uh for those who don't know the observatory has six, seven telescopes on the uh, Giovanni Open Deck Observatory, and the public comes up and can look through all of them. And one of the telescopes, instead of looking through the eyepiece, you, it's uh, got a video camera with, where you would normally put your eye, and it's connected to a, I don't know, 50-inch television screen. And it has the advantage that the camera is an integrating camera, so you can build up an image of objects that might be too faint to really see well. For instance, something like the Ring Nebula, which is hard to see colors on with your eye, you can quite nicely see the greens and reds of the nebula in the television camera because it's, it's, it's enhanced and magnified over time. And you can see faint galaxies. So the, the, the meet an astronomer person, and we try to have one astronomer up there, I guess, every Saturday night, mm -hmm. is uh, sort of stands there and says what it is we're looking at and what it all means and, and uh, answer questions on any topic. You know, and you never know what you're going to get. Occasionally, <laughs> you'll get questions about cosmology and black holes, of which I really know nothing. Right. <laughs> I, I, I assume I probably know more than the average tourist and can get away with a reasonable answer. Yeah. And that, that really works. But it, it's fun. I mean, you know, I, I have a, a line I was telling somebody the other day that I like to use when we're looking at galaxies. Uh, you know, these things are typically 15, 20 million light years away. And I will point out to the people watching that that light that you just saw right there has been on its way to the Earth for 15, 20 million years. And if you weren't here tonight and we didn't have the telescope up, it would have fallen on the ground and made all that trip for nothing. Oh, <laughs> I love that. It comes <laughs> uh, over big with that. <laughs> but it's oh, true. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. it would have been in vain otherwise. Mm -hmm. But it's fun. I mean, you know, I get to answer questions. One, of course, is the, you know, they're often the obvious one. Is Pluto a planet? Right. Uh, is there life on other planets? Right. And you get to throw around big numbers like trillion galaxies and 400 <laughs> billion stars in every galaxy. If you multiply those out, you know, the number's out there somewhere. And, you know, what's the odds that, uh, you know, if one in a million has, 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 is in the habitable zone and one in a mm -hmm. million is, has the right conditions for life, what's the chances, you know, that you might get amoeba? 
and mm-hmm. it becomes hard for for things like uh, answering the question: Is anybody out there actually watching us? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a harder question because you don't know how, even if life formed how it would go. But you can say with certainty that if the nearest star is eight, is four light years away, that it's unlikely that they're coming here to buzz people in the swamps of Louisiana. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Would you drive all the way to Phoenix to shine lights at people and make funny faces at them? <laughs> well, you know, uh, Larry, of course they're involved with the government. It's all just a big That's cover right. up. It's a yeah. Yeah. And we're directly involved. involved. Mm-hmm. Apparently, yeah, well, Lowell definitely is involved with the government. Oh yeah, you you heard it here today, folks. On Star Stuff, Dr. Larry Wasserman confirms life forms on other planets. This all reminds me of the old the old joke about. This reminds me of the old joke about aliens um, seeing our radio and TV waves and saying, "Don't bother visiting. Yeah. There's oh, yeah. no intelligent life there." Yeah. <laughs> That, that, was, that was Carl Sagan's line, of course, that, uh, you know, that the radio waves are on their way out. And they're, uh, what is it now, 70 years since the advent of television. So every star within 70 light years of us has been bathed in I Love Lucy. Yeah. Carl's line was that that may be the reason why they're not coming. <laughs> well, Larry, have you seen the movie Galaxy Quest? No. Okay, I suggest you add that to your recommended scientific view, uh, you know, watch list. Okay. Um, it's a classic. Uh, I always tell Kevin it's my favorite Star Trek movie. Well, Larry, Larry you, hopefully all this time that you've spent in African astronomy, you can also talk about some of your research um, and... And you have such a great history here, um, looking at small bodies in the solar system, um, proje- projects such as the Deep Ecliptic Survey. Can you just give kind of a, um, a two-minute overview of your 40 years here at the observatory? <laughs> well, let's see. Uh, when I came here, uh, 50 years, we got a, 50 years, <laughs> almost 50, 48 <laughs> Uh, when I came here shortly thereafter, we got a what was called a PDS machine, which is a a machine that digitizes glass plates. It uh, you take a, it's got a glass platen and you put a glass photographic plate. Remember, this is before CCDs were invented, so all all of astronomy was on glass photographic plates. So you put that on the platen. And you could use it to measure the positions of asteroids relative to the surrounding stars. And that's how you determine the orbits of asteroids. The problem is if you don't have positions in the sky at various times, and that's the right ascension and declination, the positions of the asteroid at a given time, where is it now in the sky? If you have that at many... Uh, what are called epochs, or many times, you can fit what is known as an orbit to the data. And an asteroid orbit is basically six numbers. It's the ellipse that defines the orbit and the orientation of the orbit in space. And those six numbers tell you where the object will be in the past and the future. So you need an orbit 
the so-called orbit, the six orbital elements, the mathematical numbers that define the, uh, uh, the object, because if you want to observe it tomorrow, you need to know where to point the telescope. These things move with time. A typical main belt asteroid moves more than the diameter of the moon in a day. So mm-hmm. it's not going to be where it was today, tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And you need to know where it's going to be. And for that, you need an orbit. And to generate an orbit, you need to observe it. It's sort of a closed loop. You need the observations to generate the orbit. More observations improve the orbit. And eventually, you mm-hmm. get to a point where you can say, I know where this object will be in the future for the next 100 years. Hmm. But, how do you prove an orbit? How do you what? You said prove. you have to prove the orbit. Oh, improve. Improve. Say you have only three or four observations. Well, you can derive the six numbers that define the orbit. Hmm. Okay, from that. But there are measuring errors and only four numbers over a short period of time. That means that the orbit you derive will not be accurate. So when you go to look for it a month later or a year later, it may not be where you think it is. Mm-hmm. So you need to keep observing it and improving the accuracy of those six numbers, the precision of those six numbers that define where it's going to be. And eventually, with an asteroid at least, the minor planet center, which is the governing body of all this, will decide that the object is known well enough, and a given asteroid, and it will assign it a number. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I started doing this back in the early 80s, late 70s, back in the Cretaceous, there were 3,000, I'm sorry, the Cretaceous. In the midst of time, there were about 3,000 numbered asteroids. That is, there were only 3,000 objects wow. that the Minor Planet Center felt we knew the, or- the object's orbit well enough that we could definitely say that if you took the six numbers that defined it, that you could find it again. There are currently 610,000 numbered objects. Oh, wow. And that's wow. primarily due to the surveys that came online in the, in the, uh, in the early 2000s that scanned the sky every night mm-hmm. and discover new objects and refine the orbits of the old ones. Interestingly, the, the uh, Vera Rubin telescope, which is going to start observations in 2024, which used to be known as the LSST, the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, but now they've named the telescope after Vera Rubin, and LSST has been changed to the Large Survey of Space and Time. They kept the, the other acronym. Ooh, that's changed. a cooler name, though, right? Cool name. Well, Vera yeah. Rubin deserved an honor. Right. Vera mm-hmm. was cheated out of a Nobel Prize. Yeah. She Why? should have gotten a Nobel Prize. Yeah, for her work on dark matter. <laughs> Why was she cheated out of it? I didn't know about this. Um, I think because she was a woman. Very yeah. few women have, have received Nobel Prizes. Yeah. And uh, Especially back then. Back then, yeah. So there's a bust of her on the uh, one of the walks up at Lowell, the mm-hmm. Galaxy Walk, I think. Yeah. But uh, she did a lot of her work here on the 72-inch. Amazing. Anyway, yeah, we actually still have her instrument, right, Kevin, yeah. in the astrograph. Yeah, it's still in the basement. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, getting back to the orbit business, yeah. so there are now six hundred thousand numbered objects, 
The interesting thing about numbered objects, to digress for a minute, is that when an object is numbered, when it's given an official number, the, uh, the discoverer is allowed to give it a name. And the rules on naming are very loose. Uh, the IAU and the Minor Planet Center, the only restriction is you they, they don't like you to name it after a pet. <laughs> and they don't like you to name it after political figures till they've been dead for 100 years. <laughs> but other than that, there are some very odd names. Asteroid 3142, 3142, is named Kilo Pi. Kilo, Kilo Pi, of course, pie. is a thousand pi. Oh, nerds, nerds, nerds. 3.14 <laughs> is 3142. <laughs> <laughs> there, there are asteroids named for... Uh, rock stars. There are name the asteroids named for astronauts. There are asteroids named for artists, poets, uh, all kinds of people. There's one named for an airline. Somebody named their favorite <laughs> their, their asteroid for their favorite airline. So there's an asteroid Swiss Air, <laughs> and there's also an asteroid called Dioretsa, D-I-O-R-E-T-S-A. Anybody um, want to guess what diuretza means? Something backwards? Hint. A hint. It's the first asteroid that has an inclination greater than 90 degrees, so it orbits backwards in the solar system. Oh, All the asteroids are going this way, ah. it's going that way. So where did diuretza come from? It's asteroid. Diuretza is asteroid. Back Gosh. <laughs> Awesome. Nerds. Oh, I love it. I, I love named it. an asteroid for my high school physics teacher. He was 95 <laughs> at the time. I considered it a great honor. You named it? For, for my high school physics teacher. Nice. I discovered a couple oh, hundred okay. asteroids. Just and a, a lot few of folks hundred. Here observatory after, uh-huh. It's now become after you've worked here so, so many years, um, you get an asteroid named after mm-hmm. you. You get an asteroid. Yeah, I've got you one. You get your very own mm-hmm. asteroid. Yeah, I've got an asteroid named after me. Yeah. And a yeah. comet, sort of. <laughs> I'm named after the after comet. After a comet, yeah, it's a full circle. It's full, full circle. circle. <laughs> Ted Bowl, when he did the LONIOS project, the Lowell Observatory Near Earth Asteroid Study Project, mm-hmm. discovered 22 ish thousand numbered, now, now numbered asteroids. Mm-hmm. And Lowell now has naming rights for those. So, We've got enough to name employees for a very long time. Mm-hmm. It's awesome. Which is so cool. I got that email and I 100% thought it was spam because <laughs> we have a new person working in the business office. And so I was like, I have no idea who this person is. Like, I feel like this isn't right. So I emailed Katie Blazik, the the uh, like main HR person that I have contact with. And I was like, hey, is this real? And she was like, yeah, totally. Do you want an asteroid named after you? And I was like, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Click here to claim your asteroid. I know. <laughs> a couple of years ago, I got into a uh, a science fiction author named Jack McDivitt. I really like his stuff. And while I was working my way through his novels, I read one where he named the first spacecraft to Mars the Percival. <laughs> okay. And I thought that was so marvelous that I named an asteroid for him. <laughs> 
Oh my gosh. It took me a while to figure out how to contact him, but I finally <laughs> found out how to get him. He's now got a certificate for the asteroid on his wall, Aww. which he can fit right next to his marriage certificate. He can fit <laughs> it. Oh my gosh. He's ever got. That's awesome. <laughs> I'll have to read some of his books. I just pulled his um, his profile up here, and it says yeah. that his first published story was in the Twilight Zone magazine. That's amazing. Yeah, mm. he's eighty two now. He's got he's got several standalone novels, and then he's got two groups of novels. One is on uh, one are mystery stories, Ooh. and oddly enough, they're written. The, the 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 hero in the story has a secretary, and the secret and the book are written from the secretary's point of view. Very Sherlock Holmesian point of view, which which is very <laughs> different as a book. And yeah. his other series is about a female space uh, spaceship pilot, and there's Ooh. about nine or ten novels in that series that That's go cool. on for years. They're very wow. good. So, Reminds me of uh, Sherlock Holmes, written from the perspective of Watson. But getting back, getting back to astronomy. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was talking about orbits. So mm -hmm. I started with measuring asteroids on this PDS machine back in the 80s. And then I got into working with Ted Bowl. I got into doing the orbits for them myself. In other words, determining, once you've got the measurements, the next thing you do is you determine the orbits. And this is, this is a tricky problem because and if you have one object orbiting the sun, just the asteroid, then the orbital elements never change. They're constant forever because you've got a, an object orbiting the sun as a point mass, nothing changes it. But if you put it in the real solar system, that asteroid is being pulled on by all the other planets in the solar system. And you have to account for that. Not only do you have to account for all the other planets pulling on it, uh, for instance, something that comes near the Earth, like the uh, like a Earth near-Earth asteroid, you have to worry about the effect of the Earth and the Moon both. You have to worry about the effect for near-Earth asteroids that the Earth is not a perfect sphere and mm -hmm. has a pear shape, and therefore its gravitational force is not that of a sphere but a funny-shaped object, and you have to account for that. Mm -hmm. You have to account for the uh, relativistic effects of the sun on objects that come near the sun. There are asteroids that come near the sun. You've got to worry about things like comets that outgas, and those outgassing is like a rocket, so you have to take into account that. Mm -hmm. And for some asteroids, uh, small asteroids, they can be affected by solar radiation, and that's something called the Yarkovsky effect, and you have to worry about that. So determining the so-called, the six elements I mentioned is you have to know the elements, not only what they are now, but if you want to compute where the object was a year ago, you have to worry about how those six numbers changed over a year because the asteroid is getting yanked around by everything else 
all those other forces. So it can be, mathematically, it's a very complicated problem. But of course, once you do the math, it's easy to run in a computer. And you can mm-hmm. run thousands of these now in an hour or two. Yeah. So uh, I've been doing this now for years. I still do it for the current set of asteroids. I still run new orbits for all the asteroid for the uh, database we keep, uh, the Astorb database that Nick Moskovitz is involved with now. And you use the LDT for that, or is that something separate? Because I the know LDT that your project is different. Ah, okay. The, the problem with, with with Kuiper Belt objects, which is what I'm interested in there, is that Kuiper Belt objects have orbits that are very long. They're typically 500 years periods because they're out beyond Pluto. So they have long orbits. But the first Kuiper Belt object was discovered in 1992. So almost all of them have only very short observational arcs. They've been observed only for a short period of time. And Mm -hmm. as a result, the orbital elements that you derive for those objects, the orbit, is not very good. So these things drift away from where you think they will be in reality. So I've had a long-term project once a month. I observe as many Kuiper Belt objects as I can using LDT to to do measurements of their position so that we can refine the orbits of these things so that they don't get drift off in time and get lost. (laughs) The problem is they're very faint. Most Kuiper Belt objects are 23rd, 22nd, 24th magnitude. (laughs) <laughs> and you need a big telescope. And if you're looking for one to say you want to do science on one of these things, well, you go to a telescope, a big telescope, which has a small field of view, mm-hmm. and you go look in the sky. Of There may be thousands of objects in the field. Which one's your target? Right. You know, it doesn't look any different than any star. So unless you're mm-hmm. fairly certain you know the position of where it is, it's hard to be sure that you're even on your target. Right. Unless you have a good position for it. Which was something that Clyde Tomball knew all too well, right? Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so I do that as a, as a project now. Uh, I'll be on LDT Monday, Monday morning. I have the, the midnight to, to dawn block of time on LDT on Monday night. It's a late and night. I'll be observing these again. So I, so the, the, the orbit thing that doing asteroid orbits which I started way back when, shortly after I got here, in one way or another, I'm still doing. In the meantime, I got, I worked with Otto for a while on double stars. That's my getting out of planetary science thing. And as Kevin pointed out, I've, uh, I've been doing uh, occultations on and off ever since my thesis, which was an occultation thesis. Well, let's, let's get into that a little bit. We're, you know, ideally, we're going to talk about the rings of Uranus because this is 45 years since the mm-hmm. discovery this year, if we want to, you know, feel old. Um, and so it all kind of ties together. The beginning, looking at um, these occultations, um, and you, you looked at maybe explain what these are and then talk about your discoveries first with Pluto, with the atmosphere and then your ongoing studies 
Um, let's talk about that a little bit, then we'll get to Uranus. Um, an occultation is an event where, well, let, let's, let's do this a little differently. Think of every star in the sky and as casting a shadow of every moving object, planet, moon, uh, asteroid, whatever. So the light from the star shines on every one of these objects and casts a shadow of that object. Mm -hmm. These shadows move around as the uh, object moves. The stars don't move, or for this purpose, they don't move. <laughs> yeah. um, and the Earth is moving around. And every now and then, one of those shadows may cross over the Earth. Now, if you're, the shadow is a perfect silhouette of the object because the star is effectively a light at infinity. So it's casting a shadow that's the, a perfect silhouette cross-section of the object. Okay, now say that shadow crosses the Earth and you are standing where the shadow will pass over you. That's an occultation if you happen to be there. The, star, the object occults the star, and from your point of view, the star disappears behind the object and then pops out sometime later. Hmm. So that, that seems that's rare. The, like it seems like for those things to align, yeah, literally. Effectively, the line connecting you, the asteroid, and the star is a straight line at that instant. That seems very rare, or like the chances well, of that well, happening. Is, but there's a lot of stars and there's a lot of objects. Right. <laughs> yeah. So there's so there's a couple parts there's to it. There's it. there's predicting these things happening, and then there's going out right. to the location wherever that might be, and observing, and that's where the story right. really gets yeah. fascinating. That's where the fun mm -hmm. starts. Now, if the object doesn't have an atmosphere. Okay, well, the two, two things to worry about, atmospheres and no atmospheres. Say it's an asteroid without an atmosphere. Most asteroids, why would you want to do this in the first place is the, the obvious question. <laughs> Most asteroids are too small to measure any size in a telescope. A couple of hundred kilometers at the distance of the asteroid belt, you look at it in a telescope, all you see is a dot of light, looks just like a star. There's no way to distinguish a disk. So we have no way of accurately measuring the sizes of asteroids. There are indirect methods. You can measure how much heat they give off compared to how much visible light they give off. And you can estimate the size, but there's no way to really accurately measure the size. So an occultation, if you're now think about measuring an, going to an occultation and putting two observers in the shadow, separated by a known distance. So each one sees the star disappear for a short period of time. If one of them is near the top of the shadow, you're going to see a relatively short disappearance. If one is near the middle, you'll see a longer distance. If you know how far apart the two observers are, and you know the time of the disappearance, you can convert the time to a distance because you know how fast the object's moving. That uh, that the orbit of the object tell, tells you how fast it's moving, the orbit I was talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. 
So say you get a 10-second shadow and it's moving at 20 kilometers per second, then that cord that you measured is 200 kilometers long. And if somebody else measures a cord 50 kilometers long and is 200 kilometers from you, then you can fit a circle to those two cords and determine how big the shadow was after the fact. The size of the shadow is the size of the object. You've now measured the size of an object you can't possibly see. And the fact that this works is evidenced by the fact that NASA, before it sent New Horizons to Arakot, that's that funny-shaped object, Mm -hmm. wanted to know how big Arakot was going to be because they needed to know you know how much light you get at the Earth from the object, but you don't know how big it is. And if it's a big object and it gives you a certain amount of light, then it's got to be darker than a small object that reflects the same amount of light. Small, bright objects reflect mm-hmm. just as much light as big, dark objects mm-hmm. or a big, dark object. Yeah. They needed to be able to set the exposure time on their cameras. They needed to know if this thing was going to be a bright object or a dark object. So NASA funded us, a project out of Southwest Research in Colorado and I, that I was involved with, cool. to do occultation of this thing. Now, this is not as easy as it sounds because our It doesn't sound easy at all. It to be only 15 or 20 kilometers in diameter. That's uh, 10 miles across. Oh, wow. Now, that means the shadow is only 10 miles across. And to predict where the shadow is going to appear on the ground, you need to know the star's position effectively to 10-kilometer accuracy or an angle equivalent to that. And you need to know where the asteroid is to that kind of accuracy. And if you don't, the shadow, you'll be here, and the asteroid, the shadow, will be 30 kilometers north of you, and you've missed it. Oh, my God. We're talking about sending 25 telescopes and 50 observers someplace so you can set up a picket fence to, to hope you get it. Problem is you don't know you don't even if it's fifteen kilometers you don't know exactly where it's going to be, mm-hmm. so you want to put up what you want to do is you want to put fifteen twenty observers in the field, space they three miles apart, bang 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 bang, and hope that the thing goes that you know where it's going to go well enough that four or five six of the of the twenty five observers will actually see the event and all the other ones will miss. Yeah. Oh, it sounds exciting. I ended up going to Mendoza, Argentina for four days with portable telescopes and 50 people. And we did this, and it turned out that while the star position was very good, because the star position is based on the Gaia European satellite. They measured positions of stars extremely accurately. The star was very good. There was a slight error in the position of the of the of Arakop, and we got a miss. Oh, wow. so oh my gosh! Six months later, they improved the the uh, the orbit of Arakop. This is again the orbit that I was talking about earlier. Those magic six numbers, <laughs> and off we went to Camadoro Rivadavia, a small oil drilling mm-hmm. town in south. Eastern Argentina, 
And we did the same thing again. We set up in the field. It was freezing cold. It's winter <gasps> down there. It's windy. And we actually did get the occultation. And the fit to the occultation indicated that Arakoth was a binary object with two lobes. In other words, there Lobe. was two lobes, you know, two lumps, you know, like two rubber balls stuck together. Oh. It looks like a snowman. It People call like it the snowman. snowman. It looked like a snowman. In fact, if you take the occultation profile that we derived and superimpose it on the silhouette of the object as seen by New Horizons, it's an almost perfect fit. Nice. Really? Yeah. So we knew the fact that it was a funny-looking snowman. We knew that a year beforehand <laughs> because we had the occultation results. That's, That's so cool. Holy crap. So I did I did asteroid occultations at Lowell for a number of years. We we did it. Uh, we we the, what the the game there was that you would, rather than try to observe a particular object, you would predict occultations and the way you predict occultations by the way is you basically in the computer run the orbit of the asteroid against a large catalog of stars and you compute where the shadow is going to go but do you use like excel no 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 this is all uh signs cosines and mm. it's uh programming <laughs> you program it I'm sorry. Are you a hacker, Larry Wasserman? No, but I do program. <laughs> wow, I'm that's so cool. As in Fortran, which is now considered a little obsolete. <laughs> but, what? But you know, if you're taking a sine or a cosine of an angle, it doesn't matter what you write it in. Mm -hmm. So I have a program that predicts occultations. So that is so them, cool. This predict, is very swordfish. All of a sudden, <laughs> yeah. we, we predict. We pick a hundred or two hundred large obstacles that were interesting, and we'd run predictions, and we'd ignore anything that didn't happen to pass near Flagstaff. So, wow. you know, through New Mexico or California or Colorado, we had three telescopes that we could take out in the field that would big the big, heavy, clunky telescopes, <laughs> and we'd basically run off to the middle of nowhere. They ran off batteries, and we'd go off in the field and set up in the field and record the light from the star as the shadow passed over. Nice. And we measured the size. We did we did Ceres, which is the biggest asteroid in Mexico, which was rather amusing from my point of view. Kevin, I think you know this story. I love the story. You have to tell it. Um, he knows Ralph, all the stories. Ralph, oh, yeah. Ralph Guy and I were the team for that one. And we were south of Culiacan, about 50 miles south, and we saw a road going up a hill to a microwave tower, which we figured would be isolated, out of the way, no car lights. Mm -hmm. And we set up the telescope up there, and we got the event. We were, we were in the shadow, we got the occultation, and we got in the truck to go back to Culiacan, turn the key, and the car went click. Oh, no. This is before cell phones. Oh, no. Oh, no. You're not can... lucky with cars, are you, Larry? No. Nobody can call. <laughs> so we slept in the car, and in the morning we walked down the highway, down to the highway, 
and we stuck out our thumb. <laughs> we got the data, and that's the only thing that's important in this game. Good. The problem with occultations is that they're, you know, they're, they happen once. If it's yeah. cloudy, it's all over. You can't do a, a rerun. You can't ask the asteroid to go back and do it again. So the getting the data is vital. And we got the data. The fact that we were inconvenienced a little bit, mm -hmm. that's all part of the game. I've, I once flew for an occultation all the way to Perth, Australia, to use the telescope at the Perth Observatory that Lowell had a connection with and got rained on all night. It happens. I mean, you know, sometimes you get clouded out. Yeah, we heard a story um, from Dr. Kathy Olkin about her shadow chasing days. Yes. Um, and it doesn't seem like it ever goes smoothly, but that's the adventure of it, right? Well, I did one. Uh, I did a Pluto event with Kathy in you did. Uh, Switzerland. Oh, that's awesome. Of course you did. I don't know, did you mention this one? Um... Is that the one she, so she mentioned a story when she was chasing an occultation and like she had to set up a, uh, her observation post basically where people were like skiing and then they realized that they couldn't see it because of a mountain and they had to take some train to some other place to see well, yeah, their occultation. We, uh, yeah, we, no, it was, uh, we had arranged with a telescope it, was this you? Were you there? Was, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> of course. I went with Kathy on that one. And we had arranged a telescope in some city. I don't remember where. We drove there. The problem was that it was early in the morning and Pluto was just barely above the horizon. So you had to point the telescope low on the horizon. And we discovered that the telescope we had arranged to do this at wouldn't point that, if it pointed that low on the horizon, it would be looking at the wall of the dome. Oh, no. Uh -oh. So now we're desperate. We got Here we are in Switzerland, and we got to find a telescope. So we took <laughs> an amateur organization. They suggested a place in a town called New Switzerland, which was, <laughs> I don't know, five or six-hour drive away near the Italian border. And we arranged, it's a place, a guy had telescopes, he, he teaches astrophotography, so he's got telescopes that can be set up outside. Mm. And we spoke to him, and he let us use his telescope. He had a, a bed and breakfast. We stayed there. We had to take a train through the Alps. There's a, the, the, the Swiss have a mountain going through the Alps. You basically drive onto the train, and the train drives goes through under a huge mountain range and that 30-mile-long tunnel or something, they come out on the other side of the Alps. Anyway, Jeez. we ended up there, and it was, you know, Switzerland in the winter. Yeah. But the, weather was, the weather was perfect, the sky was clear, and again, we got the event, and that's all that counts. Nice. She when said that the computer kept freezing, and she said not freezing like glitching, literally freezing from <laughs> the weather. <laughs> you got to be... Uh, you got to be very nimble when you do <laughs> occultations. Yeah. yeah. Well, 
Well, I have a quick question, um, and it was something that you said that it's going. I'm not going to sleep well until I, I hear an answer. <laughs> um, you said, "Oh yes, if an asteroid doesn't have an atmosphere, oh. are there asteroids with atmospheres?" No. Oh, well, thank God! Objects, I was about there, to have a heart attack. <laughs> but, there, but there are objects with atmospheres, mm-hmm. and objects with atmospheres were, for instance. The very first occultation I did was of Jupiter. And right. if, an, if an object has an atmosphere, you don't get the sharp edge when the star disappears behind it. You get a roll-off, a slow roll-off as the star sinks in the atmosphere. Think of each layer, successively deeper layer of the atmosphere as bending the light more and more mm. and therefore dimming it. So you get mm-hmm. this roll-off. The neat thing about that is from the way the light dims, you can measure the temperature and pressure of the object's atmosphere. Mm. Wow. Now, Kevin asked me to do the Pluto event first. In 1988, we, me, I think, I don't remember anymore who was the first one to predict it. We'll say you for the podcast purposes. It was Dr. Larry Wasserman. (laughs) Predicted an occultation of Pluto that would be visible in Australia and New Zealand. Um, And uh, we arranged to send the telescope. I unfortunately didn't get to go on that one, but Bob Millis and Ralph Nye went, and they went to a town called Charters Towers in northern northern eastern Australia, and. uh, They set up on the star in the the middle of nowhere, and they did get the event. They had to sleep at the site because they had trouble finding the field, and they didn't want to lose it. They didn't (laughs) want to disassemble the telescope from the night before, so they slept there. Oh, my God. And they got the event, and several other people got the event, including an airborne observatory over the Pacific. You know what SOFIA is, the telescope of the 747? This was done with the precursor to SOFIA, the Kuiper Airborne Observatory. It was out over the Pacific, and several telescopes in Australia and Tasmania, and I think one in New Zealand, got the event. But the kicker was we thought we were going to measure the size of Pluto. We thought it was going to be another asteroid mm-hmm. and do the same game. But it turned out the light fell off slowly. It didn't drop off abruptly which said that Pluto had an atmosphere. And mm-hmm. that effectively was the discovery that Pluto had an atmosphere, just mm. by chance. Cool. And uh, That's so, amazing. Uh, that Cody? Helped. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say Cody's face when you said airborne observatory. She was what? like, what? <laughs> so there are airborne observatories, yes. Do you want to elaborate yeah. on that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. Haley, can you tell yeah, me real they, quick? <laughs> Uh, opening the back of the airplane was evacuated was open to the sky mm-hmm. and there was a bulkhead that was sealed and it looked out through the top of the airplane so the i don't, I don't remember Why? how big the telescope is it was 20 inch to 25 inch or something just to get high up less yeah. atmosphere well, the, the the idea the original idea for an airborne observatory is to do infrared astronomy the problem is that water vapor in the air absorbs infrared. 
So if you want to study objects mm -hmm. in the infrared, one way is to get as high as possible in the atmosphere where the water freezes out. Mauna the Mauna Kea Observatory is good for infrared because it's at 14,000 feet, but an airplane is even better if it can go up to 40,000 feet. Mm -hmm. Right. So the Kuiper Airborne Observatory was designed for infrared observations, but it was also used for occultations it had the advantage that you never got rained on. Yeah. Right. Which is, I guess, an out. advantage of the James Webb being so far out because it can see infrared really well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I did it. Hey. hey. The Kuiper Observatory was a... Military airplane. I was going to say that... Mm -hmm. Looking for aliens. The Kuiper was a, was a cargo yeah. plane, but then its descendant, Sophia, um, the Stratospheric Observatory that, for is, Infrared Astronomy is a... Converted 747. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there, there the, the telescope looks out through the side of the airplane. Yeah. There's a door that opens in the side of the airplane. And Larry, I, I feel I feel it's kind of back. honored to be able to talk to you about this because the office I'm sitting in was Jim Elliott's office when he visited Lowell. Ah. And Jim Elliott's sort of the father of occultation um, um, airborne observatory. And he, he was at MIT, but he came here every year to do research, and I'm sitting in what was his office. Um, and so I, I need to get a picture of him up here because he, he really influenced a lot of science. I should mention that Jim Elliott was a research astronomer at Cornell when I was there. Yeah, you and... And he was involved. With, he built the instrument that I did. I did the occultation that my thesis research was based on. That Carl signed off on. Yeah. yeah. So... Uh, <laughs> Which was an occultation by Jupiter, another object. <laughs> and, and Ted Dunham was another part of that team. Yeah, and uh, there were four of us: me, Jim Elliott, um, uh, Joe Viverka, and uh, Bill v Bill uh, Little Bill Liller were involved Bill with Nye. that event. I did the analysis for my thesis. And then Ted Ted Dunham somewhere <laughs> along the way. Was Cornell also? Was he after you? Ted, Ted was also involved with that. He was at Cornell for a while, and then he was at MIT with with. Uh, no, wait a minute, I'm... and Amanda. Yeah, Amanda Bosch. The occultations with Jim. Amanda Bosch was now at Lowell. Mm -hmm. So there's there's this vast internetwork of occultation people at uh, Southwest Research, Lowell, and MIT that all interleave with one another that have been in each other's back pockets for a long time, as it were. Well, while we're talking about the discoveries, like you were talking about the discovery of Pluto's atmosphere, um, you know, which we were lucky, we, we, got, we did get to talk to Amanda about that on a recent recording. Mm -hmm. um, I want to take some time to talk about your discovery because mm -hmm. Haley um, let me know that you discovered the rings of Uranus. Well, not me personally. I also <laughs> was not, I also did not go on that occultation occultation trip that I was involved with the predictions again. Mm -hmm. In 1977, we predicted an occultation by Uranus would occur. And again, in the Australia area, and uh, basically, we thought we were going to study the atmosphere of Uranus like we did before. 
And then when we did that, we discovered that there were these, and again, it was Bob Millis who went on the trip, but the tracing for the event showed that the star was obscured several times going into the atmosphere, before it got to the atmosphere. So you got dip, 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 then the atmosphere with a gradual dip as you expected. Then it came out of the atmosphere with a gradual rise as expected. And then there were dip, 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 dip as it went out. And it was realized after the fact that the dip, 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 dips were the same before and after except backwards. Mm-hmm. In other words, the biggest dip was the first one going in and and was the, the last one going out. And they, they looked, they had the same sort of general shape for the dip mm-hmm. as it was going in and going out. I was realized that there there has got to be a ring system around Uranus. Mm-hmm. And so that was a total surprise. Yeah, I um I mean Uranus is beautiful. I had was wasn't even aware that it had rings. Um, you know, I guess Texas public education speaking for itself, but I had no idea that it had rings. It's it's absolutely beautiful. Um and I remember I think it was Jennifer Hanley who was talking to us, perhaps it was Amanda about how amazing it was to catch that in an occultation because um, like it had to be lined up so specifically mm-hmm. for the rings to be caught in that occultation. Yeah, they're, they're, they were, the, the, the way uh, Uranus was oriented to, towards us, the, the rings are in the ecliptic plane and the pole was pointed towards us more or less so that you went through the rings as though they were circles on the sky around the equator as opposed to edge on so you would pick them up the interesting thing is that a year or two later infrared ccd cameras were invented and they took pictures of uranus and showed the rings perfectly well it's just that the rings are dark in visible light and all the visible light pictures that were taken of uranus over the years never picked up the rings the first infrared picture of Uranus, well, you, the rings are, are obvious. You couldn't possibly miss them. So it's a question of who would have discovered them first, occultations or uh, infrared camera. The other odd thing with an occultation is that, I, again, this was a European event. Uh, a couple of European observers observed, and I think in Brazil, an event involving an asteroid called Charlie Cole. Hmm. And it turned out it has rings too. And again, nobody had ever even suggested that asteroids might have rings. It's nuts. And now, now from occultations, we know there are at least two asteroids that have rings as well as planets. So it's a, a very interesting technique. The other, the other odd thing, we're talking about occultations, and come, this one coming up, uh, the, the Pluto business, the question is, why would you keep observing occultations of Pluto? There's been a spacecraft that went there. We know everything mm-hmm. about Pluto. Yes, the spacecraft measured the atmosphere of Pluto, but it measured it once, and then it mm. went by. Occultations give you an opportunity to watch the atmosphere change 
because right. you can do it this year and you can do it next year and yeah. you can do it the year after that. So NASA has yep. been funding occultation research on Pluto before and after the flyby mm -hmm. because we've been watching the atmosphere do things. It's getting denser, warmer, or whatever it's doing. We're yeah. watching it. Yeah. Well, we haven't even seen a full orbit of it yet, so well, there's still a lot to learn. That'll take 250 years. Yeah. <laughs> and will you still be at Lowell, Larry? Probably. The, uh, but this one, we did discover one more. You know, I, I say we discovered unusual things because of occultation. The atmosphere of Pluto, the rings of Neptune, that, at, that asteroids have rings, we discovered that asteroids have satellites through occultation, too. I, uh, I, I was involved with Otto on the Hubble Space Telescope. Of course you were. double stars. <laughs> and one of the people on what was called the astrometry team, which was the team using the instrument that does astrometric measures using Hubble, uh, put in a proposal to look for asteroids of... Uh, uh, satellites of asteroids using Hubble, because at the time it wasn't known if asteroids could have uh, if asteroids could have satellites, and he was denied time because quote everyone knows that asteroids don't have satellites. <laughs> right, and a significant number <laughs> of Kuiper Belt objects have satellites. A modest number of near Earth asteroids have satellites. There are a fair number of asteroids in the main belt that have satellites. Oh, the hubris um, of men, <laughs> humankind. Not doing science because we know better. Right. Anyway, uh, so uh, uh, satellites of asteroids have been discovered through occultation. And there's one more phenomenon that was discovered with occultation. With an object like Pluto, which is small, it has an atmosphere, the atmosphere itself doesn't really, you, you don't think, with a big planet, you think of the star disappearing into the atmosphere on one side of the planet and then emerging from the atmosphere on the other side. But with a small planet like Pluto, the atmosphere acts more like a lens and focuses the light. And it turns out if you are at the center of the shadow, there's an enhancement of the light from the focusing of the light all the way around the planet into the center. Yeah, think of a lens <laughs> focusing the light at a point. Mm -hmm. So if you are at the center of the shadow, you can see this enhancement. So what happens is the light dims, if you're there, you see the light dim into the atmosphere. Then there's this sharp peak right in the middle of the event, and then it then it goes back to, to nothing, and then it comes out and comes back. Almost as if, if there were a hole in the middle of the planet. Yeah, as though there were a hole. <laughs> and from that, now called the central flash, you can determine information <laughs> about winds on the planet. Sounds like a superhero. You can measure the blankness <laughs> of the atmosphere, and you can study hazes low in the atmosphere.
So unfortunately, we are running out of time. It always goes by so ridiculously fast. Um, But I do want to ask you uh, something that I really enjoy asking everyone on the podcast. Can you tell us your favorite fun facts about space or planets? Oh, Lord. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm... I've always liked Pluto. I mean, you know, it's, yeah. I mean, we've been studying it for years, you know, ever since we discovered it had an atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Lowell has been involved with Pluto one way or the other forever. Yeah. Um, Literally. Mark Bowie, yeah. who's now at Southwest, was here for a while. He was the first one to try and make maps out of the uh, Hubble telescopes of Pluto. And these maps, Pluto is so far away that, uh, you know, they just were light and dark areas on the on the disk, but it turned out they do match up with the real you know spacecraft observations. So we did it right. Uh, the satellite, the first satellite of Pluto, was discovered right here in Flagstaff at the Naval Observatory. I've been involved with occultations of Pluto. I've been involved with the uh, Arakot business, and which is New Horizons. It's not directly involved with Pluto. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, you know that's the one that's kept me sort of entertained over the years. So it's it's uh, it's sort of neat, great fun. And I have a a quick uh, question. <laughs> so I um, am now when will forever envision you as a computer hacker, um, <laughs> hacking hacking the orbits of these um, celestial <laughs> objects with your keyboard. Um, and I. Uh-huh. I should mention that the 72 and 42 inch telescopes are controlled by software I wrote. Yeah. What? Yeah. Are you serious? No, yeah, I'm serious. That is so cool. <laughs> and the 31 inch, which was retired, used to be the Astrograph still has that. And there's a telescope in California that uses that software. Mm-hmm. We'll have to get you to help us um, with some coding on the website. Yeah, and, <laughs> that'll be so and, simple right <laughs> and, and for a while I, I i i was involved in the payroll software <laughs> nice <laughs> so um i i heard a rumor that you um are getting into gaming speaking of being oh, a oh. total computer hacker well, that, well no that i like computer games that involve solving puzzles mm. no kidding I loved Mist. See, in fact, I'm just due to order one. There's, there's one. I, I just finished The Witness. Yeah. And uh, I'm now looking into uh, Quern, Q-U-E-R-N. Yeah. I may order it today or tomorrow. And um, on the PC, your PC yeah. gamer. They're all on the PC. Nice. What a rad dude. <laughs> that's, that's what I do in my retirement time. Yeah. <laughs> So are you retiring from Lowell? No, not at least for the next year or two. What? Okay. All right. At least stay for one full orbit of Pluto. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, what, uh, let's see. 1930, it was discovered it'll be around in 2180. If I stay yeah. around that long, I can get to see Halley a couple of times, too. Yeah. It's around in 2170. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. I mean, you wrote the payroll software, so I'm sure you can work as long as you want. (laughs) 
Well, we are actually out of time now. Um, yeah. <laughs> but thank you for joining us. You're welcome. It's been fun. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, reminder to all our listeners out there, uh, we do have a Discord channel for Star Stuff, a space podity, where we post all kinds of cool stuff, including, uh, including uh, trivia on Trivia Tuesdays, where you can be the trivia master for a week. And uh, <laughs> we also have a Twitter where you can see some cool behind-the-scenes content, and you can also use the hashtag AskStarStuff to ask us questions you might have about about life, the universe, and everything. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thanks, guys. Cool. Yeah, thanks. This podcast was made possible by our members and donors. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support our nonprofit in making more digital education like this available, go to lowell.edu donate. Thanks for listening. <laughs>